this is Aliska from From the Frontline. Tonight we are dealing with faith and freedom under fire. Dr. Hammond is with us in the studio. And Dr. Hammond, where are Christians being persecuted? Well, right now we've just gotten from World Watch List the 10 top countries, the worst countries in the world for Christians right now. And uh, at the top of the list, it may surprise many people that um, it's Afghanistan. Afghanistan is now the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. And uh, we are also having other countries. North Korea has been bumped from number one to number two. Uh, Even though the persecution has increased in North Korea over the last year, but Afghanistan's worse. Uh, Followed by Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Eritrea, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, India, and Saudi Arabia. Many years, Saudi Arabia has been number one or number two with North Korea. But at this moment, we've seen India, Pakistan, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Eritrea, Nigeria becoming even more severe than Saudi Arabia even. So those are the top 11 worst countries on earth for a Christian right now where Christians are being violently persecuted. Mm, That's shocking. How does this persecution manifest itself? Well, let's just take Afghanistan. So... Christian men face almost certain death if it's discovered that they are Christian in any sense. So uh, they will be stoned to death, uh, beheaded, shot, and so on. Women and young girls may escape death, maybe, but then they'll be married to young Taliban fighters who want the spoils of war. When they say married, I mean it's it's the same thing as as human trafficking and rape, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, they trafficked. Uh, basically, they become slaves. And uh, the incoming Taliban regime gained access to recordings and reports that the Americans left behind that helped identify Christians. And they were often detained in order to be tortured, to identify networks of Christians before being killed. And then as other Christians hunted down. So by President Biden abandoning, betraying the people of Afghanistan, the American claimed to come to protect and care for 20 years ago. They betrayed them worse than just abandoning them. They left biometric data every bit of pictures, details of everybody that they'd ever cooperate with or would cooperate with them or provide information. And they had all the information, including those who were Christians. And so Taliban terrorists or fighters have been actively tracking down Christians from the existing intelligence left behind by the Americans, and they've gone door to door to find them. So in Afghanistan, it's extremely violent um, and vicious, and it's genocidal. Uh, but then you you get other kinds of of persecution. So, uh, for example, if if you're going to Myanmar, um, where it, it's a Buddhist military dictatorship, uh, the old Burma. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Myanmar, uh, any convert for Christianity will find themselves uh, immediately removed from community life, and so the communities say, you must be a Buddhist, and if you're not a Buddhist you will not be allowed access to the water resources. You can't get access to the well, to the pump. You can't get water from uh, the village water supplies. You're outside the community. You won't get any help. And uh, you get places like uh, India, where Hindu extremists are trying to cleanse the country of the tens of millions of dedicated Christians there. There's a lot of Christians in India. Um, But the extremists are regarding the Indian Christians as not true Indians. And so they think the country should be purified of non-Hindus and have got a systematic targeting of Christians and other religious minorities. And they include use of social media to spread disinformation, to stir up hatred. And 
the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown lunacy has offered new weapons to persecutors. So now in many areas in India, Christians are being deliberately excluded from local distribution of government aid and even accused of spreading a virus so that the aid for people having the businesses locked down, not the, oh, only go to Hindus, can't go to you because you're a Christian. They're that blatant. In Qatar, the persecution against Christians has also greatly increased because of the lockdown, because they say because of lockdown restrictions, no church is allowed to be open. And so they just closed all the churches. Uh, that's in Qatar. Uh, interestingly, Qatar hosted the World Cup last year, but converts from Islam faced physical, psychological, and in the case of women, sexual violence uh, for being Christians, for not being Muslims. In Bangladesh, the local authorities told Muslims who convert to Christianity that they could not receive any government aid. You have to return to Islam or you'll receive nothing. And so the Bangladeshis have said, we see villages, our neighbors getting relief aid, government support, but Christians get no support. And we are expressly told you have to convert to Islam if you're to get any aid at all. So that's how blatant and uh, absolutely... Uh, discriminatory though, Central African Republic, which has been very hard hit, um, they say all Christians are denied government aid. You must convert to Islam if you want to eat. Simple. Oh. If you want to eat, you've got to become Muslim. We won't allow any food to go to Christians. That's how they're now using these new uh, regulations now in the case of health. And of course, we know in places like Zimbabwe, they actually have said, unless you're vaccinated, you can't go to church. And then they've sent soldiers in to actually beat up the pastors, rifle butt people in the face, kick people in the head, drag people out of church, uh, beat them uh, severely uh, because they're not vaccinated. So you can see that in the name of caring for people's health, mm. people are having churches locked down, they're being denied food aid, they're having their businesses closed, and there's a particular targeting of Christians. So those are just some of the ways that Christians are being persecuted today. Of course, it also includes the standard Christians are denied access to higher education. Mm. Christians are not employed in these government and other jobs. And uh, there's, of course, being shunned by your family. Uh, there's people being kidnapped, people being uh, murdered. Uh, so it's it's extremely uh, serious ways. You can just imagine you can lose your job, you can lose your position in society, you can be denied access to water, you can be denied access to food, mm. um, you can even be murdered. And so there is blatant physical and social persecution and then more subtle ways of social persecution attacking yes. the lifestyles. I remember last year, August, when we were all asked to pray for Afghanistan as the um, Americans were moving out and the Christian persecution started to rise. Um, but I'm wanting to ask, who are these persecutors? Well, um, in most cases, something like 84% of the persecution um, in the world right now, they say, is actually taking place in countries with a Muslim majority. So Sharia law, uh, Islamic jihad, jihadists are the cause of a lot of the persecution, such as in Nigeria, Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab are, are targeting Christians. So um, Islam, radical Islamic terrorism in the name of Sharia law uh, is definitely a key part of uh, the persecution. But in the case of India, it's Hindu extremists who are intolerant of any other religion. And uh, in Myanmar's case, it's uh, Buddhism, uh, so the Buddhists are persecuting there. Uh, in North Korea and China, of course, it's communism. Mm. So the big persecutors of the church are communism and Islam, with Islam 
accounting for more Christians being persecuted at this time. But mm. it can also be Hinduism and Buddhism. But increasingly, we're also seeing secular persecution so that you can see in Canada, for example, uh, the government in name of secular humanism has locked up pastors and closed churches for, they said, violating COVID-19 lockdown measures or mask mandates. So they've actually closed churches, barricaded churches, built fences around churches so people couldn't even meet in the church grounds, um, and where the state has taken pastors and thrown them in jail, uh, like they are drug dealers and common crimes, ambushing them with vehicles on the main road, dragging the past other car and, you know, literally slamming them into the ground, uh, kneeling on the neck um, and uh, handcuffing them in such a way that their arms almost break. So uh, even in a nice, peaceful, free country like Canada, you can see harshness being given. They're saying they're doing it in the name of, of um, lockdowns and masks, but um, you're seeing a great increase in hate crimes against Christians in Western Europe, for example. So mm. in Western Europe right now, they say hate crimes have increased over 70% compared to 2019. And Christians are the most targeted in hate crimes in Europe. And so the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe has reported in their 2021 report uh, that hate crimes in Western Europe are at an all-time high and Christianity is the most targeted uh, religion for hate crimes in Europe. Now, that isn't the impression most people get if you read the daily news, but this is the official report from the Organization for Security and Cooperation, as reported also in uh, the um, Human Watch List. And by the way, amongst these, these attacks, Germany hate crimes, anti-Christian hate crimes, have more than doubled since 2019. And in France, two churches are attacked every day. So we're talking about over 700 churches attacked throughout the year, a one calendar year. And so uh, two churches every day, and most of that would be um, where there's a Muslim majority. And so uh, Christians around the world are experiencing very high levels of intolerance, hate, mm. and direct persecution. Oh, so in the name of health and toleration, Christians are not being tolerated. And the enemy is crafty um, using secular persecution to persecute us. Why is persecution increasing so dramatically at this time? I think we're living in a time of incredible intolerance. But right now, because we are facing what is obviously the biggest global attempt to restrict people's freedoms in the name of fighting a virus, but you can see this fitting into Agenda 21 and into Agenda 2030, which have been accepted by the United Nations' major globalist aims, where they want to reduce the world's population dramatically and where they want to urbanize the world's population more and make people more and more dependent on the state and make people unable to be self-sufficient. So obviously farmers can be too self-sufficient. That's why there's a war on farmers and a war to bring down the rural population and to greatly expand urban uh, population. And so Agenda 21 and 2030 have been very uh, clear about um, moving in more and more high-density housing into uh, uh, cities, um, making suburbs which are quite spacious, more crammed uh, to support more and more high-density housing, to get more and more people crammed in the city where people have less and less space and less and less opportunity to grow their own fruit and vegetables and to be completely dependent on the suppliers, which can either be the national government or the United Nations and World Food Programme and so on, and therefore make people vulnerable. You know, where you can say, 
well, you want food, you've got to wear your mask, you've got to be vaccinated, you can't be a Christian, you've got to convert to Islam or whatever the conditions are that that local uh, authority is giving. But plainly, what you're seeing right now is there's an agenda where you've got the globalists saying they want radically to bring the world's population down, they want the world to be more uh, compliant. And Christians are the kind of people who think for themselves who might read the Bible and say, my conscience is kept to the word of God or no taxation without representation or give me liberty or give me death or something like that. And so Christians are a problem because many Christians are pro-life, don't support abortion and will not take the vaccination perhaps, want large families, want to homeschool, uh, are maybe uh, self-sufficient uh, farmers. So Christians are perceived as a threat to the globalist, totalitarian, top-down this is the agenda, get with the program, follow us or else. And so they perceive the Christians as being the biggest opposition to the globalist new world order plans. That's from a logical perspective. But I think there's something more than that. Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. Mm -hmm. And if they hated me, they'll hate you too. If they loved me, they'll, they would love you too. But because you're not of the world, because you're of, of me, the world will hate you. Yeah, mm. The servant is not greater than the master. And so they persecuted Christ, they'll persecute you too. Christ mm. suffered for us and left us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. Mm. So I think we've got to recognize that there's a satanic anti-Christian element to the persecution. It's not just mm. logical agenda, new world order. There's something occultic at the core of it. And so uh, plainly, as, as the Bible says, those who hate me love death. And um, those who hate God and hate wisdom plainly do love death. So I think Christians are being persecuted this time because we're at a heightened time of globalism and of secular humanism. And therefore, right now, the hostility for Christians is great because Christians form a key core of the resistance to all this agenda. Yeah. Well, and the prince of this world is the enemy of the church. And as long as we don't bow to him and bow to Christ, we will be in resistance against them. And those who are not bowing to Christ, they will be easily conformed to them. So how many Christians are being persecuted for their faith? Well, at this moment, they say over 360 million Christians are suffering high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. Now, that's a great rise. I remember when we started our ministry uh, of IDOP, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, well over 20 years ago. Uh, there was something in the region of 120 million Christians who were living under persecution. And as recently as 10 years ago, we would be using statistic 200 million are living under persecution. That's persecution by governments. Mm. Now it's 360 million Christians are living in governments, under governments that are persecuting them with high levels of persecution and severe discrimination. That represents one out of every seven Christians in the world is living under government which persecutes him. Now, that's not to say that you could be a Christian in a country where you've got general religious freedom, but your family or your community are persecuting you. Uh, so we're not talking about them, just talking about those who are living where the national government is hostile to the Christian faith mm -hmm. and it's expressed itself in laws and actions. So mm -hmm. as far as killing of Christians goes, last year, uh, that's those that we have the names of mm -hmm. and the details of, 5,898 Christians were murdered for their faith. Now, that's an increase of 24% from the previous year. And uh, additionally, another 6,175 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, imprisoned. So over 6,000 
detained without trial for their faith, and 3,829 were kidnapped or abducted. This particularly happens in the Muslim world where they might kidnap a Christian uh, to force them to be converted or to human traffic them, sell them to slavery and forcibly marry them and so on. So the way this works out, if you bring the numbers down, it means every day an average of 16 Christians are being murdered for their faith, 16 a day. 27 are being arrested or imprisoned, or, and um, you've got 14 churches are being destroyed or mm. attacked every day on average. 14 churches a day. 16 Christians murdered a day, 27 arrested every day. That's the ones that we know the names of. Now, of course, there's a whole lot of others that could be happening that we don't know about. Mm. Um, not everywhere's got immediate social media access and internet. And so uh, it's, it's obviously uh, even worse than that, but that's what we know of. And if you just take those numbers, you can see um, now that's talking about killed and arrested mm. and abducted. That's not talking about all the other, like being deprived of food, employment, not allowed to attend church, and so on. Well, that is shocking. And as those people are persecuted, we must remember that they are part of our body. If you are a Christian, those 16 plus that we don't know of even are part of the body of Christ that we are partaking of and that we need to pray for. Um, so what can we do to help those who are suffering for their faith? Well, certainly we've got to be informed. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. We need to be interceding. We're told to pray for the persecuted. We must remember those who are in bonds and chains as though we're chained with them. Uh, we're one body, and it's not possible for one part of your body to be hurt without the whole body being concerned. You can't say, oh, well, you know, it's just my big toe or just my tooth having a, um, just a migraine, just a toothache. No, I mean, if, if one part of your body is sick, the whole body knows about it and sympathizes and, and is concerned. Just like if one part of the body is blessed, it's a blessing for all the body. You know, it's not just your mouth that's eating the ice cream. There's a positive sensation for all. And so we should rejoice for those who rejoice. We should weep for those who weep, as the scripture says. So what can we do to help them be informed, be interceding, and be involved? We can all do something. And the least we can do is to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, to be able to publish their, their details. So we can use our social media platforms to share with others. We can try and mobilize our church, our prayer group, our Bible study cell groups to remember the persecuted. And not just in general, but in specific, when we know of a person, we know of a place, we know of a specific tribe, a congregation that's under attack or under pressure, uh, that we lift them up. And um, we could do this at family meal times and prayer times, at church prayer times and a personal devotional life. But praying and uh, getting involved. Now, there's some things that we can practically do. For example, a lot of our brethren in Zimbabwe, which is our immediate neighbor to the north, are suffering terribly. And so for many years, we've been putting together boxes with love where we put in a lot of good materials, uh, food materials and um, um, all kinds of uh, cleaning things and medicines and whatever we know they're short of, which is almost everything. Uh, things that won't spoil, things that will preserve, uh, compact, um, high-quality uh, mm. protein and materials, you know, everything from toothpaste, uh, soap, um, painkillers, uh, through to um, tins of bully beef and bags of sugar mm. and what have you. And so um, send these boxes love for pensioners and prisoners and pastors and others who we know are, are suffering to deliver these tangible reminders of um, that we care in the people who know and 
who pray and they're not forgotten. And uh, this can be a great help. So there's always something we can do with it. Writing, some places we can write letters to people in prison for their faith. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, sending gifts, um, obviously that's very tangible, helpful. And as we've tried to do in our mission weekly is visit, just mm-hmm. that they know they're not alone. It means so much to be visited and to be encouraged. Uh, but we can also write letters to the places where, uh, to the governments that are oppressing them, uh, let them know that they uh, they have brethren in the West to care. This is how people like Richard Wurmbrandt and Alexander Solzhenitsyn came free because people in the West were putting pressure on the Soviet Union and on Romania over the persecution. So that in the end, they let them go, they exiled them. They thought, well, okay, we can't kill them because they're too well known in the West. And propaganda is important for dictatorships too. Mm-hmm. So they exiled them and so that uh, they at least got their freedom. And I've campaigned for people like Azar Moyo, who was in prison with me in, in Lusaka Central Prison in Zambia. And uh, uh, in 1987, when I came out of prison, I campaigned at the International Society for Human Rights Convention Frankfurt and on BBC World Service. And finally... Um, the Zambian authorities let him go and he was reunited with his wife and his children. And that meant so much. In fact, uh, he gave me the story that he was in prison and suddenly the warden came running uh, across to cell 11. Uh, Azai, Azai, that white South African missionary who was here with you, he's on the radio. He's talking about you. And he brought the shortwave radio and uh, the wardens all gathering around, all excited. They've got a celebrity in the prison here. And I was talking about Isaiah and I was giving his address and Isaiah said, male sacks were carried into his cell. And he became, of course, it wasn't his cell. There was another 60-odd people in the cell. But uh, he suddenly was the most popular person in prison. He had soap and he had salt and he had sugar and he had all the good things that everyone wanted. And after that, nobody mistreated him. And, uh, and the time came that he was released. So as the Bible says that what we, sow, what we, uh, lo- uh, what we le- loose will be loosed and what we bind will be bound. And so we've seen prison doors opened and captives sent free just by prayer and publicity. So as our Lord told us in Luke 18, he gave the parable of the unjust widow, uh, of the unjust judge and the persistent widow. So the persistent widow was seeking justice from this unjust judge. Now, he didn't care about man and he didn't fear God. But because of the persistence of this widow, he saw that justice was done. And so the Lord uses this as a parable saying we should always pray and not give up. And so he shows that while we should always pray to God, we should put pressure on the politicians. In fact, the first time I went to America, and I actually heard Ronald Reagan personally at a public meeting in Washington, D.C., and Ronald Reagan said, politicians never see the light until they felt the heat. Mm-hmm. Make sure you keep up your heat on the politicians. And, and so in a real sense, we can serve the persecuted by praying for them and pressuring. So prayer and publicity provide protection for the persecuted. Wow. Yeah, and so we need to be faithful in those. For you, that was just a small thing that was that you were being faithful in, and God used that greatly. And so Frontline Fellowship was founded to serve the persecuted church. In what ways has Frontline been doing this over the years? Well, this coming April the 3rd will mark 40 years that Frontline Fellowship's been involved in serving the persecuted. So on the 3rd of April, 1982, I first crossed the border into Mozambique, our first cross-border mission to serve the persecuted church, and I was taking New Testaments and World Ministry Press Gospel booklets and the Jesus film and 
visiting the persecuted church, and the people were so excited. They said, we haven't had a visitor since the revolution, seven years before. And people fell on their knees and cried and wept. This this Bible is the first Bible I've ever had, or not since a communist burnt my Bible have had a Bible. I've been praying five years for my own copy of the Word of God. This is the greatest gift anyone could ever ask for, the Word of God in his own language. And I had the privilege of, of leading people to Christ through even members of the communist forces and seeing them put the AK-47s in dirt, kneel down the front, baptizing people who were communists who we would have been fighting not that long before. And so uh, from the beginning, Frontline Fellowship sought to serve the persecuted church with literature. We've, by God's grace, taken well over a million Bibles and New Testaments and Christian books into Sudan alone, not counting how many hundreds of thousands of Bibles and books and gospel booklets we've taken to Angola and Mozambique and the Congo and Zimbabwe and all the way up uh, Rwanda and many areas like this. So um, I've served in 38 countries in eight wars in the last 40 years uh, with Frontline and something in reach of 18,000 meetings. That's church services, sermons, Bible studies, uh, lectures, um, school meetings, assemblies, and so on. And so uh, in the course of the last almost 40 years, we've served the persecuted church with literature, tons of literature, hundreds of tons of literature, actually, with leadership training. Because when I crossed the border, the first thing I asked was, what can we do to help you? And the people said, Biblia, Biblia, Bibles. They wanted Bibles. And so I've always seen that as a highest priority, taking Bibles, making Bibles available. And then when we asked them, what more can we do to help? They said, Bible teaching. We need more teaching in the Word of God, more discipleship. So leadership training became our second highest priority. And then when we were asking them further how we could help, I'd sometimes be asked, we need medicines. Um, and there's no hospital here. And so the third part of our work from literature, leadership training became love and action. And so we'd be taken with its boxes of medicines and boxes of love to prisoners, pensioners, and uh, to pastors in Zimbabwe, or taking a container of medicines into Sudan, uh, or driving an ambulance up to Sudan, uh, or taking medical training, medical paramedic packs and doctors nurses to train the first medics of the SPLA, the Sudanese People's Liberation Army in Sudan. There's been love and action taken farmers to teach farming God's way and, and agricultural support, how to make the most of what they've got, agricultural seed tools. We've taken vast amounts to the new mountains of, of seed and shovels and uh, for um, pangas all the way through to um, the picks and uh, whatever else they needed, forks and so on for the, for the agriculture. So helping the people with medicine, agriculture, and other practical love and action, along with leadership training and literature, that's, that's how we've been seeking to per serve the persecuted church. But there's been another aspect too. That's what we do to help them, mm -hmm. to encourage, to bless them. And it often just means so much, quite aside from whatever we brought, that we came, that they had a visitor, that they weren't forgotten, as you, mm -hmm. you've experienced. Yes. But the other side was coming back and reporting and speaking up for them. And sometimes I had people say to me in Mozambique and Angola and in Sudan, you must be our ambassador. You must speak up for us. You must let the people know what's going on here. And so I think we've served the persecuted church by our newsletters, by our report backs in churches, by radio programs like this, uh, by setting up websites like the FrontlineMissionSA.org, by the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, which we've been part of from the very beginning, an international initiative to mobilize churches worldwide to at least observe one Sunday a year to remember and focus on the Persecuted Church, which is normally the second Sunday of November. 
close to Remembrance Day, when people remember those who have fallen to wars, to remind Christians to remember those who are martyrs for Christ or who are even now being targeted for their faith. And so uh, we've sought to speak up for the persecuted church. In some ways, probably our books have done us the best, writing books like In the Killing Fields of Mozambique, Holocaust Rwanda, Faith and Defiant Sudan, Slavery, Terrorism, Islam, the Historical Roots and Contemporary Threat. These are just some of the books that I've written. My father-in-law, Bill Bathroom, wrote Going Through Angola by the Back Door, Going On, Speaking Up for the Persecuted Church. He spent 67 years serving persecuted churches. And uh, we have, of course, helped make films. Uh, generally, I've taken in the filmmakers. Pat Matrician of Jeremiah Films, he produced Sudan, the Hidden Holocaust, Terrorism and Persecution, Understanding Islamic Jihad. Uh, we took in secular uh, filmmaker, war correspondent, who produced Three Days in Sudan, which was interesting because he said he was sent to do a hatchet job on Peter Hammond and to destroy Frontline Fellowship. SATV said, was sent him in. This is 20 years ago. And a man came there, and you could see the start of the video, very cynical, skeptical, and so on. And But then suddenly he becomes very pro. Why? What changed? Well, he was bombed on day two. Um at a church service, and amazing how that changed his perception. He was in this church service where I was preaching um, Isaiah 46, uh, um, a mighty fortress of God, and next thing you know, the shells and rockets and bombs are landing all around us, and everyone's scrambling for cover. And he filmed some of this, and that made its way into Three Days in Sudan, which SATV rejected because it was too pro. But he gave us a, a copy and said, you're welcome to duplicate and distribute, because... SATV doesn't want this anymore because um, I didn't do a hatchet job in you, as, as they'd said. But um, films, we've made some of our own films, such as Missions to the New Mountains of Sudan, but we've helped a lot of other people like Samaritan's Purse produce their films. Mm-hmm. And so I think through films, through books, through newsletters, through radio, through websites, through regular e-updates, through church services, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and we've even got the www.idop-africa org website, which uh, focuses people's prayer on the church in Africa and produce prayer posters, pray for Zimbabwe, pray for Sudan, pray for South Sudan, pray for the Muslim world, pray for Africa, Africa for Christ. And so many of these prayer posters and initiatives, um, social media posts, um, these are different ways. So what we've been doing to serve the persecuted church uh, is directly, but also indirectly, and by word and deed, by lip and life, by um, faith in action, uh, seeking to serve them, and doing what they've asked for, which which has been the literature, the leadership training, the love in action, and speaking up for them. Mm. Yeah, well, and we've had a privilege recently to also bring Bibles in local languages and do leadership training, bring love in action, as you say, and just being faithful in that, God providing and opening doors for that, you really see the joy in these um, brothers and sisters in Christ getting the Bible for the first time and realize what a privilege it is to have what we have. And, um, you know, we need to we need to take action like that. What is Frontline's vision for the future? Well, there is no doubt that uh, when we started, I thought it would just be very short term. You know, we going across the border, we're going to deliver Bibles to Christians in Mozambique, you know, and I, I didn't know that this would be a lifelong calling at first. And I must say that... When we started, I didn't think that we would see the Berlin Wall come down in my lifetime. I didn't think we'd see Mozambique free and open for the gospel. Um, We were just trying to help. Uh, We didn't have much of a long-term vision at first. But how I've been astounded to see how God has answered our prayers. We have seen some of the most astounding answers to prayer in the last 40 years of our mission. Mozambique, which was the most 
closed country in Africa, the uh, the first atheistic country in Africa, Samora Michel pledged to make it in 1975. He said, I will make this the first truly atheistic country in Africa. And he declared war on a church. He destroyed 8,000 churches, either confiscated, burned, destroyed, locked up, barred, and uh, bolted. He had 75,000 people publicly executed, had 300,000 thrown to concentration camps. Millions died in a man-made famine. And Samora Michel was a man who literally declared one God and cursed God and blasphemed him and dared God to strike him dead. And so, you know, as I document in, our, in the killing fields of Mozambique, you wouldn't have expected much good to have happened. And yet today, Mozambique is open for the gospel, free for the gospel, churches are open, missions are open, Christian schools are open and legal. In fact, it's easier to open a Christian school in Mozambique than probably in South Africa. The paperwork is less. And uh, missionaries are allowed. Uh, so we've seen the opening up of Mozambique and Angola to the gospel, whereas they were completely closed. In Operation World, uh, back in 1980 when we got started, Operation World was saying the least evangelized country in the southern hemisphere, not one Bible for a thousand people, no one under 18 in the church, no missionaries allowed, no baptisms, anyone under 18, and so on. And to see how Mozambique and Angola have been wide open for the gospel. When we started our work in Mozambique, officially, according to Operation World, there were 4% Christians in Mozambique, 4% Protestants officially. Today, it's more like 34% if you add charismatics, independents, mm -hmm. all those who call themselves Bible-believing, born-again Christians of different sorts. And so um, an, an amazing growth. But then Zambia, I mean, when I first went to Zambia, I got locked up and imprisoned and it was a one-party dictatorship UNIP under, uh, under Kenneth Gohinder, and Kenneth Gohinder called socialist humanism the, the guiding philosophy of, of the country. And uh, uh, he said he could never accept the Calvinist faith of his parents, which says that man is depraved. He believes in the goodness of man. And to prove he believed in the goodness of man, he was throwing so many of his best minds and uh, leaders into the prison. And so I met some of these extraordinary people, engineers and generals and <laughs> future presidents and so on in the, in the cell. Uh, interesting how the future government of Zambia is actually in cell 11, uh, presidential detainee cell where I was locked up in Lusaka Central in 1987. Well, by 1991... Kenneth Kunda was gone, out, overthrown, his 26-year one-party dictatorship overthrown. And a man who had been in a prison with us, uh, Frederick Chaluba, was now the president. And he dedicated Zambia to being a Christian country at National Days of Repentance, National Days of Thanksgiving, banned abortion. We were invited in. One of our friends that we made because of my imprisonment there, uh, who is now vice president, uh, Godfrey Meander, um, he... Uh, challenged me to produce the book Biblical Principles for Africa, uh, which was then distributed to all the cabinet ministers and members of parliament in Zambia. We were invited to teach in the teacher training colleges, to minister to the soldiers, to get on radio and national TV. And so to see Zambia, which used to export terrorists, they sponsored and supported the terrorists who were taking the landmines and the bombs to Rhodesia, to Mozambique, to Angola, to Southwest Africa. Well, uh, now Zambia exports missionaries and broadcasts the gospel, and it's it's a it's a major uh, publishing place for Christian literature. And they're producing evangelists going to all neighbours. So Zambia's been a phenomenal answer to prayer. Eastern Europe, I was smuggling Bibles in Eastern Europe back in the 1980s, and uh, to have looked at the Berlin Wall at that time, the Iron Curtain, I thought would be up till Jesus came. I, I never thought it would come down in our lifetime, but Brother Andrew. 
challenged me and everyone else in Hospital Christian Fellowship, because my first mission was HCF. I was working under Francis Grimm Hospital Christian Fellowship. He came to speak at the devotions there. I'd just come out of the army and I was launching Frontline Fellowship while still being part of, of HCF at that time with the blessing of, of Francis Grimm. And uh, uh, he said, we are going to start a seven-year Jericho pre-march to bring down the Iron Curtain, to open up Eastern Europe to the gospel, to collapse communism and Soviet Union, and to open up Russia to the gospel. I remember thinking, has he gone mad? This isn't possible. I mean, isn't everything meant to get worse and worse? Aren't we living in the last days? But still, um, this vision, he said, this isn't a Western initiative. It's already started in Eastern Europe. The Leipzig prayer meetings, they are praying for the collapse of communism. They are seeking a seven-year Jericho prayer march focus on bring down the Iron Curtain. Well, that seemed impossible, but seven years later, 1989, down came the Berlin Wall. The Iron Curtain collapsed. One communist country after another was toppled, most dramatically Ceausescu's dictatorship in Romania. And we were there before and after this, and what a transformation. And, of course, the independence of South Sudan. I mean, when I first started going to South Sudan, it was one of the worst places on earth. No freedom, absolute persecution, genocide, slave raids, aerial bombardments, scorched earth. And now South Sudan is an independent country, internationally recognized, the youngest country in the world, <laughs> independent since 2011. So uh, just just 10 years old as South Sudan, and that's something we worked for. So I've seen a lot of answers to parents. So Frontline's vision for the future is that we would continue to seek to be available as a small group of dedicated Christians willing to go where God sends us to do what God commands us, to say what he commands us to say. And so we've been a very flexible group. We grew out of a Bible study and prayer fellowship in the South African Army that met every night for Bible study and prayer in the two years I was in service. And out of this Bible study and prayer fellowship where we prayed through Operation World and we saw the needs and we went to the worst, the most closed, the most difficult, restricted access areas. And we've seen them opened up. Now I can see. So that's what God was planning, to have a group of Christians who are flexible, to be responsive, to go where needed, where the gospel is not legal or permitted. I was told by so many people at the time, this isn't possible. It's not legal. It can't be done. It shouldn't be done. This isn't the right time. You're not the right person. This isn't the right way. And uh, yet God blessed. And with hindsight, we look back and we say, but God did guide us. And he did answer the prayers, and he did open up those areas. And so from Mozambique to Sudan and throughout Eastern Europe, or all the way to Russia, we've seen transformation in answer to the prayers of God's people. And so a lot of what we do, I think, is guided by Operation World. Operation World analyzes situations in every country, and missions like ours seek to be available where possible within our limited resources, manpower, vehicles, and so on, to go and to make an impact where we can and to seek to comprehensively fulfill the Great Commission, body, mind, and spirit, applying the Lordship of Christ to all areas of life. And so uh, our vision for the future right now is uh, we want to set up a farm, calling it Livingston Farm, uh, and the Livingston Missionary School, LMS. Um, the mission that sent out Dr. David Livingston, the best friend Africa ever had, was London Missionary Society. So keeping the initials LMS, Livingston Missionary School, have a missionary training college because I don't know of a practical hands-on, boots-on-the-ground missionary training college available in our country right now and uh, or in the continent for that matter. And so we want to set up a farm that is going to be a place where people can um, send their home-educated 
children for graduation where uh, after they've finished their schooling, we will give them the practical, sort of like what we had when we came to the army. We had to do two years in the military. And uh, during that time, we learned a lot of skills. And in fact, God did. I, I look back at that as a great time of physical discipline, teamwork, all sorts of things. I was stretched. My muscles were stretched. My endurance was stretched. My stamina was stretched. Could work through the night, walk through the night, run through the day, and uh, and work as a team and, and work fast and efficiently and not be stopped by obstacles. Obstacles are only there to be overcome. That's what the obstacle course teaches. And so to have a missionary training school where youngsters would come in and receive the kind of discipline in the army without the abuse and the foul language in a Christian environment where they will be uh, taught discipline, getting up early, PT, physical activity, but it'll be practical, like agriculture and fixing vehicles and carpentry and building obstacles and courses and uh, the things that we can use for camps, training, and other groups coming in, outreaches in the local area, but help build up this farm to be a self-sufficient mystery farm, learn the skills that will be useful in any mission field, at any mission station, wherever you go, so that they won't be helpless, but they can fix vehicles, do film evangelism, literature evangelism. They can be able to repair this, organize, whether it's uh, the irrigation systems, whatever, farming God's way, the whole lot. And we bring in guest speakers and capable people from all over and see that they learn everything from where the master evangelism explosion, answers in Genesis, all the key things that are key, wonderful tools to be effective missionaries and evangelists. And so our vision is uh, to continue to motivate and mobilize, to educate, to encourage, to empower, uh, to equip, uh, to inform, to inspire and involve people, to put a body, mind and spirit, head, heart, hands, uh, feet on the street, boots on the ground. And uh, so as a mission, our vision is still very much we're involved in a spiritual world war. We've got to serve the persecuted church. We've got to extend the kingdom of God. And the best form of defense is attack. We are going to attack the kingdom of Satan, darkness, snatch the souls that are, whether they're in addictions or uh, at bondage uh, to false religions or to drugs, whatever, um, with the gospel, seek to bring people freedom, release to the captors, freedom to those in bonds, and to continue to be available as God's servants, God's soldiers, to go where he sends us, to do what he commands us, wherever he wants to advance his kingdom. And Africa is the place to do it because the church is growing in Africa so greatly that can you believe of the 500 million people who claim to be Christians in Africa right now, according to Operation World, 100 million do not even have a Bible or even a New Testament in their language or in any language. Mm. And so the need for Bibles is huge, but the need for Bible teaching is even more mm. because most of the pastors of Africa don't even have Bible college training. We can't produce Bibles fast enough and we can't produce leadership training fast enough to accommodate the growth of church in Africa. And so one of the most strategic things we can do is literature and leadership training. Oh, yeah, and I can testify to that um, as you were speaking about a need for training in Africa. A few years ago, well, many years, over 20 years ago, Frontline went in to do a Biblical Principles for Africa training in northwest Zambia area. And as we went in there now, we met a chief and he told us, yeah, he's a Christian and so on. And we asked him about 
um, his history and he heard we are from from um, Frontline Fellowship and he said, wow, so many years ago you guys came in, some of your missionaries, and taught us this biblical principles for Africa and that's when I decided I want to be involved in politics as a Christian. And now he's a chief of one of the greatest areas of Northwest Zambia combating hmm. animism and so on. So, And yeah, we can definitely pray for the church there in that area. Animism is high and uh, Christians, they are being persecuted by the witch doctors and so on, including him. Um, but yeah, no, that is that is just such a testimony of how God can use faithful, um, faithful obedience many, many years later and show us the fruit of that. Um, just another question. What are some of the threats that we confront? Well, right now, there's no doubt there's increasing intolerance and there's increasing demand for conformity and increasing uh, intolerance for dissent or disagreement. For example, you can just see it in the whole COVID cult masquerade madness, lockdown lunacy, salvation by vaccination, you you know, no jab, no job. Um, uh, if you don't get vaxxed, you're not allowed to travel and so on. So, and which, of course, there's a lot of resistance rising to it, and rightly so. Uh, those are some of the threats. But what's more serious is the amount of Christians who've allowed themselves to be silenced and intimidated and sidelined and even shut down. Uh, in this, our ministry to Persecute Church for almost 40 years now has shown us that Churches don't close down just because governments say they've got to close down. They might be forced to go into home meetings or meetings in the forest, underground services, but they don't stop. And it's deeply disturbing that Christians have allowed themselves to be intimidated. We need to fear God and we need to fear God alone. We should not fear man. And what's more important is the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And our highest priority is the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's vital to get our churches back to seeking first the kingdom of God uh, rather than the New World Order's uh, agenda for Agenda 21 or whatever it is. So therefore, I'd say the biggest threats right now is maybe cowardice, compromise, lack of fear of God. Mm -hmm. yeah. We need to pray towards that as well. How can listeners be involved in speaking up for the persecuted church and for serving those who are suffering for the faith? It's so important. Get on the mailing list. If you're not yet on the Frontline Fellowship emailing list, contact us, mission at frontline.org.za, mission at frontline.org.za, the Americans would say. So mission mission at frontline.org.ca uh, email us in ask to be put in the mail list we will gladly send you regular updates and visit www.frontlinemissionsa.org website and you'll see we've got audios videos links posters prayer material reports on different countries regular updates and you'll see videos and, and mm -hmm. leadership training materials being added at different times and if you just want to focus on the persecuted alone we've got uh, the narrow focus www.idop short for International Day of Prayer, dot, or hyphen Africa, idop-africa.org website, and that'll kickstart any prayer for the persecuted church in your local community. Mm. Yeah, and we do need to pray for our um, fellow brothers and sisters who are part of the same body of Christ. And we need to also have this vision of being obedient, make disciples of all nations, and have a vision. Without a vision, people perish. And we are called to save those who are um, being led away to death. So may God bless you and have a good night.